0: One Hope Church. We're going to be talking this morning about uh, James four, thirteen through five, eighteen. Uh, that should, I think complete the book of James for us, uh, considering the fact that we covered uh, the last two or three verses in James uh, chapter 5 last week. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity uh, to speak this morning. Father, thank you so much for um, just the the things that you've put in my path uh, that have drawn me closer to you. And, uh, Father, I just ask that uh, this morning, above all else, we seek Jesus. Uh, I just uh, ask that that you lead my words, uh, and that above all else, that uh, Jesus is glorified, Father. Uh, Thank you for this time together. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the love of this place and the community of this place and, and for the ability to come on a Sunday morning and be part of something that is set apart from the rest of the world, Father. We know that that's not of our making, but that's of your making. And so we're so so thankful for that this morning, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So uh, about seven years ago, I would say that I probably was a, um, I was probably a cultural Christian. What I mean by that is that I went through all the motions, but it really didn't mean anything. Um, I was treating a patient in the clinic at the time, which was on Prince Avenue. And I squatted down, and it was almost like when I squatted down, it was like somebody took an axe and just chopped my head into, like split my skull. Um, into left and right halves. And uh, through a series of events and a series of tests and all of this over the next couple of days, we realized that A, I'd had a stroke. Uh, B, the stroke probably should have killed me if uh, you know, not could have killed me. And C, the stroke was caused by this hole in my heart that I never knew was there. I knew I had a, 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 a I didn't know I had a literal hole in my heart. Um, or a physical hole in my heart, I'm sorry. Um, But anyway, I had a hole in my heart that we didn't know was there, and so went to Emory and had heart surgery. And so coming out of all that, I realized um, that life is precious and that you can do all the right things. You know, you can do all the quote-unquote right things and that you can eat a healthy diet and you can exercise, but we're not assured of tomorrow, and that's the one thing that That experience taught me, among many other things. Um, The other thing that I think that experience taught me was it was like it was almost time to put up or shut up from a lifestyle perspective, from a Jesus perspective, and so I just felt this deep tug that man, you you got to figure this out, like you got to get this figured out. Um. So when I finally, after years of kind of dipping my foot into the pool, when I finally decided to pursue Jesus and to abandon everything else, um, I kind of felt the Holy Spirit tugging on me um, and just telling me, like, you know, I'd I'd wronged some folks. I'd said some stuff I shouldn't have said, done some stuff I shouldn't have done. And so I just felt the Holy Spirit tugging on me and, telling me, hey, you know, you need to seek this person out, and you need to apologize, you need to rectify this situation, and so there were calls, and there were emails, and there were text messages, and there were meeting people in parking lots, we were running into folks, um, but there's still one person that um, I haven't apologized to, and so I want to start this morning by apologizing um, to that guy, so I was a senior uh, in high school, Sachs High School, small town in Alabama. and was playing football, and I had played football for a number of years, and just like any other situation, when you're a senior on the football team, you're kind of the leader. You know, you're looked to as the leaders of the football team, Um, and our football team wasn't very good before my senior year, and so we entered um, preseason camp, and uh, the coaches, I think, wanted to toughen us up, and so... As part of that toughening us up process, we went through two-a-days, which was pretty normal. Two-a-days means, for those of you all that don't know about football, means you have a morning practice and you have an afternoon practice. And so I remember it was a hot August morning, and um, we were going out for our first practice of the day. And so we started our practice after we warmed up. We started our practice with a one-on-one drill where they take a big circle. Everybody on the team was put into a big circle. And then they take two guys in the middle of the circle, and it was basically like, you know, who can get the other one to the ground the fastest? That's what the drill was supposed to be like. But it became pretty apparent after a few minutes that that wasn't what the coaches were looking for. The coaches were looking for something a little bit more than that. Um, So there was some stuff that was happening in that drill that probably if YouTube had been around or if cell phones had been around, probably everybody there would have been would have been, uh, their job would have been taken from them pretty quickly. But anyway, my name was called and another guy, uh, his name was Mike, Michael. He was a senior, his name was called. We were about the same size, he might have been a little bit bigger than me, we were about the same size but, it was pretty apparent from the the way the drill was going, you better not get down. Like you better not get down unless you want to get beaten pretty good, you better not get down. And so Michael and I went after each other for a few minutes, and it was kind of a stalemate, and I think that that's probably what the coaches weren't looking for. So they kept me in there, and they brought in this young kid. The, name's, uh, the kid's name was Alfonso. Um, we all called him Alf. Um, he was two or three years younger than me. I don't really remember much about Alf other than remembering that day. I don't really remember much about Alf other than knowing that I don't think he had many friends. I don't remember much about Alf other than the fact that once that whistle blew, I went after him like there was no tomorrow and uh, got him on the ground and, you know, did whatever I felt like was appropriate at the time. I don't even remember if Alf played football after that day. I don't remember if Alf graduated high school. I don't remember if, if Alf went to the prom. I do remember getting a call a few years later telling me that Alf had committed suicide. I don't know if what I did caused him to commit suicide. I don't know if that was one event in the span of many terrible events in Alf's life. But in front of you guys this morning, I want to tell Alf I'm sorry. In front of you guys this morning, I want to look to my kids and say, when I challenge you to stand up for what you believe in, when I challenge you to be different, it's because of the mistakes that I've made. I had the opportunity that day to stand up for what I knew to be right. I knew that wasn't right. I had the opportunity that day to stand up for what I knew to be right. And imagine the difference that I could have made. Imagine the difference that I could have made if I would have put my arm around him and said no. Imagine the difference I would have made if I would have laid down for him and let him, you know, work me over. You know? So, Alf, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry that I wasn't man enough to be different. And so I just hope that going forward when the Lord presents me with opportunities to be different and to stand up for what I believe in and to say no, that he will use that moment um, to drive me closer to who he's calling me to be. So in James uh, 4, 13 through 16 we see, now listen, you who say today or, or tomorrow we will go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such arrogant, is arrogant boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James is telling us here in these verses that our future plan should be anchored in the Lord and only in the Lord. We see in Genesis 1 that God is the author and the creator of time and space. And so if God is the author and creator of time and space, that means God exists outside the confounds of time and space. Okay? We are bound by time and space. God is not. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross with full knowledge that there would be this guy, this bald-headed guy walking around named Jimbo, who would need him. So Jesus stepped in at that point in time, having full well of how this thing began and how this thing's going to end. So if God exists outside the constraints of time and space, his knowledge is all-encompassing. God knows the full story. We are, as humans, confined in our decision-making, is not based, our decision-making that decision making is not based in prayer is a reflection of the short-sightedness of the constraints that we are in in this time and space continuum. Prayerful decision-making allows us a glimpse into a bigger picture, and I think that that's what James is encouraging us to do here, is to be prayerful in our decision-making, because when we are prayerful in our decision-making, that allows us to tap into the timelessness of God that allows us to tap into the knowledge base that is God. I've made many plans for the future and many business decisions without consulting the Lord. Most of these decisions, if I were to have polled all my friends at the time and said, hey, does this make sense? Yes, it made a bunch of sense. Based on the knowledge that we had, based on finances, all that kind of stuff, it made a bunch of sense. 99.9% of the time these decisions ended up at the end of the day just looking like arrogant schemes as James would call them. The flip side of that, however, is I've seen many times when being prayerful about a decision that really didn't make sense but felt tugged to go that way and everybody, I've had employees come to me before and say, dude, what are you doing? Like I think this is crazy. But. Always, 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 when i 've gone to the Lord in prayer with these decisions, these decisions have turned out right, and so, the one thing that I want us to realize in this uh, this first passage this morning from James is the fact that God exists outside of time and space, and that 's why prayer is so important for us is to tap into the perfection of God, to tap into the knowledge of God because we're dumb, and we're bound by today's problems. Um, in James 5, 1 through, 1 through 3, we see, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Your wealth has rotted, and malls have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. These verses are very similar to Jesus' warning in Luke 6, 24, which says, But woe to you who are rich, you have already received your comfort. These verses are kind of tough for us um, as Americans. If we look to Luke 5, 4 through 6, we also see, uh, I'm sorry, not Luke, James 5, 4 through 6, uh, we see James discussing the cries of the harvesters where the, the wages that the employers have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. For us in America, um, you know, I think compared to the rest of the world, the vast majority of us would be considered rich. And so passages like these, I think, should make us uncomfortable. I want to highlight a couple of things here. I want to highlight James' use of the words luxury and self-indulgence in verse 5. And I want to encourage us that I don't believe that wealth alone is sin. I believe that wealth, if it is used for ungodly purposes or wealth that becomes a god, is sin. Um, Those that hoard these blessings for themselves serve their earthly desires and not their godly calling. James is speaking to the rich who are unethical with their wealth and who cheat their workers out of their wages. Again, we see luxury and self-indulgence and the the, uh, employers were failing to pay the, the workers who were crying out against them. When we look to the Ten Commandments, the first commandment states Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I remember when, you know, I'm in vacation Bible school and I'm nine or ten years old and you're going through the list of the Ten Commandments. On initial inspection, I'm pretty good with that one. Like, you know, I'm not going to a synagogue or a mosque. You know, I don't have any shrine or anything like that in in the house. And so I kind of look at that one and check that one off real quick. Um... To these people highlighted in James 5, 4 through 6, their wealth has become their God. A God is not necessarily something that we worship at an altar or in a church or in a mosque or in a synagogue. A God is the first thing that we think about in the morning. A God is the last thing that we think about before we go to bed. How do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? These are my gods, little g gods. and so. When I look at that first commandment and I don't apply it to the standpoint of religion in God's always being associated with some type of religion, but when I, when I apply it to what's the first thing I think about in the morning, what's the last thing I think about before I go to bed, where do I spend my money and how do I spend my time, that's something that requires, requires a little bit deeper inspection there. The purpose of being a follower of Jesus is to have only one God, and that's a capital G God. Everything revolves around him. In the clinic, we see a lot of athletes, and their entire worth is based in their athletic ability. Their ability to run fast or to bike a long way or to swim or to do all these things, their entire worth is, is wrapped up in this. I've had the opportunity to see people throughout their lifespan, I mean I've been practicing as a physical therapist for 15, 16 years and so there are a lot of relationships that we have developed with people where we see these people come in 10, 12 years ago. Creating hobbies and lifestyles um, that become your God, it never ends up well. It is always destructive. In James five ten through 11, we see brothers and sisters as an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So again, I, I want to highlight a couple, of, a couple of points here. Patience in the face of suffering is what James is encouraging. We count as blessed those who have persevered. Blessed are those that have persevered. And we see that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. When I was going through these passages and I looked up the definition of perseverance, perseverance is defined as steadfastness in doing something despite struggle or difficulty. Steadfastness in doing something despite struggle or difficulty. The definition of patience is tolerance for suffering. The Latin root of patience, P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E, is the same as the patient as in a medical patient. Okay, A medical patient obviously is there because they are suffering from some ailment. And so the definition of, of being patient is having a tolerance for suffering. So James is encouraging us here to have a tolerance for suffering and be steadfast in doing something despite our struggles or despite difficulties. Okay? And we see in this passage that even though we are, we are promised that we will experience suffering, we also see that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy at the end of verse 11. Matthew Henry writes of perseverance that to those who are sincere in their faith. God will give grace to persevere in it. Those that follow God faithfully will be divinely strengthened to continue following Him. Following God with perseverance is a work that is its own wages. Following God with perseverance is a work that is its own wages. The reward of perseverance, I think what Matthew Henry is saying here, is the reward of perseverance is a sweetened relationship with God. Talking about suffering, and patience and perseverance. I want us to kind of use those three points in James 5, 10 through 11 as jumping off points this morning. So when we look at instructions for patience or the negative implications for patience throughout Scripture, we see in First Samuel 13, Saul, who was the first king, uh, king of Israel, loses his kingdom because he doesn't have the patience to wait a few extra hours on Samuel as instructed by God. The kingdom was taken from him because he wasn't patient. Okay? And again, what is patience? Tolerance for suffering. He exhibited no tolerance for suffering. In James 1, we're instructed to bear all that God appoints for as long as God appoints with humility and obedience to rejoice in our troubles. Again, let's let's talk about that again. We're instructed to bear all that God appoints for as long as He appoints and with humility and obedience rejoicing in our troubles. We see throughout scripture that we're instructed to be patient and to persevere. Let's also look at some uh, scripture that highlights suffering. Uh, Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 1 Peter 4.1 says, Therefore Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. As Christians, we need to be prepared to suffer. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him's. For him, Philippians 1, 29. And then in Romans 5, 3 through 4, we see not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So we glory in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So we're promised that suffering will come Um, throughout scripture, we see this promise. We see that suffering is allowed to draw us closer to God. Um, We are encouraged to prayerfully be patient and persevere in our sufferings by James. Nothing has taught me more about the necessity of suffering to refine us than being a parent. Um, As parents... I've come to realize that we can't shield ourselves from, our, we can't shield our children from every bad thing. Despite our best efforts to protect our kids, um, struggles, turmoil, fear, and despair are all sadly part of this life. Throughout Scripture, we see that this is just part of it. Instead of teaching our children to run away from difficult situations, we must prepare them for the struggles of this world, prepare them to face their fears. Davis and I, we we love, as uh, the four of us, our family loves to ski. And one of the things that we always talk about when we're standing up on the top of that mountain, just got off the lift, top of the mountain, and you're looking down, and it's super steep. And you've never done that run before, and it's super steep. And so normally Beth's behind us because she wants to see what we do, and if we fall and crack our skull, then she's not going to do it. So normally it's me and the kids standing there and Beth waiting to see how we do. And um, so there's always this internal dialogue that goes on. The internal dialogue is like, do we do this? Is it worth it? Are we going to let fear kind of dictate, you know, what we're going to do? But we always kind of talk each other through it, don't we, Do And we say, let's point those skis downward and let's just dive bomb it, right? The great thing about those experiences and having those experiences as a family is that the past two Sunday mornings I've gone and I've sat down next to Davis before this service has started and I've told Davis, hey bud, I kind of feel like I'm standing right there on the edge of that mountain <laughs> looking re- looking down and, and trying to figure out if I want to just skip this one and go to the bunny slope or if I want to dive bomb it. Um, so. Instead of teaching our children to run away from difficult situations, we must prepare them for the struggles of this world, prepare them to face their fears. Using the struggles, fear, turmoil, and despair to drive them into a closer, more intimate relationship with God. If we agree that a good parent allows their child to experience difficult times, doesn't cause them to experience difficult times, but actually allows them to experience difficult times, how much more should we expect God to allow suffering to define us and to refine us. Why are difficult times required? Let's look into scripture and try to figure out why difficult times are required. God does not desire for us to suffer, but suffering became a necessary part of life when sin entered the world. Because of our sinful nature, we are separated from God. This separation is the root of sin and is the root of suffering. God does not desire for us to suffer, but allows for us to suffer to draw us closer to him. He allows it so that we are drawn closer to him. I started off with the story of my stroke this morning because God allowed me to suffer a stroke and heart surgery to draw me closer to him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And prior to that event, there were a couple of knocks on the door that I would consider suffering and I would now say it was God trying to call me closer to him. It was not God's plan for us to suffer. It was Adam's plan for us to suffer. I'm sure that our suffering pains God, much like seeing my child struggle with a bully, a fear-provoking experience, or a bad decision pains me. But the end result of the suffering is hopefully refinement and sharpening. if we allow allow it to be used to glorify God and his purposes. As followers of Jesus, we are not not promised to never experience fear, anxiety, or difficult times. We are told to be strong in the face of difficult situations. In Joshua 1.9, we see... Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So we know that suffering will come. How should we face our suffering? How do we face sufferings in this life? There are two stories that highlight the role of sin in our suffering and offer two very different responses to fear and suffering. These two stories are... Adam in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and so I want to talk about these stories this morning. I think it's interesting. I, I was I was really prayerful this week and kind of struggling with where to go with the message, and um, I was having a Carrie and I run at lunch every day, and Carrie and I were talking about this, and we just started brainstorming. So I thank Carrie. I, I thank Carrie for kind of giving me some wisdom here, but. Um, I've heard people pontificate that at the end of time, all people will be divided into one of two groups. They're either going to be followers of Jesus or followers of Adam. Like, that's it. Either you're a follower of Jesus or you're a follower of Adam. So let's look at Adam's response in the Garden of Eden. And let's see how followers of Adam respond. Remember that after they sinned in the Garden, Adam and Eve, what was the first thing they did? They hid from God. They hid from God. Their sin caused an immediate separation from God. Immediate anxiety and fear. When faced with God's perfection and their newfound knowledge of their imperfection, their newfound knowledge of good and evil, they were ashamed. Remember that as a result of turning away from God's plan, remember that Eve was cursed with intense suffering of labor. Remember that Adam was cursed and he was told that, you know, you will be forced to toil in pain to produce a crop from the ground that you can eat. And then remember that they would go on to see their firstborn son kill their secondborn son, and the list goes on and on. Their sin brought suffering and death into the world and into their family. And their response to suffering was to hide from God. Sin means separation from God. Separ- separation from God always brings about suffering. The one thing that I want us to realize is that if God is perfect and I'm imperfect, God can't be in a relationship with me on my own merit. It's almost like, you know, um, me and a monkey on a road trip. We're sitting there, but we can't communicate. We're just on different, we're on different levels. Um. The natural result of a separation from God is suffering. God did not want it to be that way. We were intended to be in constant communion with God, just like in the Garden of Eden. But Adam messed that up. Remember, initially, every day they would commune with God. That was how it was meant to be. And then Adam decided to go his own way. Jesus was required to make amends, and in doing so, he would suffer. And so I want to flip from the story of the Garden of Eden now to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the night before his crucifixion in Luke twenty-two forty-two 42 through 44, Jesus is on his hands and knees and he's sweating blood. And he asked God to take this cup of wrath, this cup of suffering from him. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So, when we read this passage in Luke 22, I think the first question that we have to ask is what was this cup that made him sweat blood? What was the cup that he was referring to? Was it the nails? Was it the cross? Was it the crown of thorns? Was it the whips? Was it the spit of the Roman soldiers? I think that a small part of it was that, but I think it was so much more. Throughout history, we've seen many martyrs going to their deaths and singing and praising God. There's a story in uh, A.D. 155 of a martyr named Polycarp. Uh, He was burned at the stake and was pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. I think they tried to light the fire a couple of times. They were having a hard time getting the fire lit. And before being martyred, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. That's powerful. That's powerful because I want to be that guy that in the face of that adversity stands up and says, Thank you, Lord. Um, for judging me worthy of this hour. How awesome is that strength? How awesome is that patience and that perseverance in the face of struggle? So Polycarp's thanking God. Why do we see Jesus under such despair that he is literally sweating blood? Prior to World War II, we didn't actually know that sweating blood was possible. Um, the Nazis' heinous uh, experiments on the Jews revealed that you can actually put somebody under such mental and physical duress that their capillaries will burst and they will actually sweat blood, like this actually occurs. I can imagine the amount of fear required for this to happen. So what's the difference... um, In the response of Polycarp and in all these other martyrs that we see throughout history, in Jesus' response, the difference is that along with the nails, along with the whips, along with the cross, along with the spit of the soldiers, along with the rejections from Peter, the betrayal of Judas, the crown of thorns, Jesus knew that when he bore our shame, when he bore our suffering, and when he bore our sin, that perfect relationship with God that had existed for all eternity would be extinguished. He knew that the natural result of accepting our sin was also accepting our separation from God. He knew that during those dreadful hours the following day, that perfect relationship would have to be extinguished. He knew the natural result of accepting our sin was that God's wrath would fall on him. This caused immense despair. This caused Jesus to sweat blood. My sin caused Jesus to sweat blood. Isn't this elective separation why we see him cry out from the cross in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That perfect relationship had to be extinguished because of our sin. He bore our sin, the perfect relationship was extinguished, and he felt completely and utterly alone. You see, God in his perfection cannot and will not be in relationship with sin, he just can't do it. When Jesus took our sin, he also took our separation. He was perfect, but he became imperfect for us. He was perfect, and he became imperfect for me. Let's look, though, that despite his fear, despite the suffering and the separation from God that was to come, he was not deterred. We see with Adam, what did Adam do? Adam went and hid. What did Jesus do? Jesus went immediately to God and prayed and immediately to God and prayed more fervently. But he ended his prayer with, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so I challenge us this morning that if we're to choose between being a follower of Jesus versus a follower of Adam, then we have to choose one of these paths when we are in the face of struggle, in the face of difficult times. Like Adam, knowledge of this separation would cause him to be anxious and fearful. He did not, however, hide like Adam did in cowardice. Instead of hiding from God in fear, he prayed earnestly to God. He suffered because it was God's will for him to suffer so that that we could return to the relationship with God as originally intended in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Jesus came to right the wrongs of the decisions that Adam made and that everybody would make. After that point, the weight of that sin was bore on the cross. The weight of that sin caused Jesus to suffer mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually more than anyone has ever suffered. Because God so loved us, he allowed his only son to suffer and calls us to a life in which we too will suffer so that we were refined in the image of Christ. Suffering wouldn't be part of this whole thing we call life if Adam hadn't sinned in the garden. It wouldn't be part of it. Fear and anxiety and separation from God wouldn't be part of this thing we call life had Adam not sinned. Were it not for the imperfection of Adam passed on to each and every one of us, Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer at the cross. If we were to become less imperfect and more like God created us to be, we must use our suffering to draw us closer to God. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering is absolutely inevitable. That's the thing that I've I've lived long enough to know that bad times are going to come. But I want us to rest assured this morning that there's no amount of earthly suffering that will ever compare to what Jesus endured. So the question is, do we allow evil to get a foothold in our sufferings and separate us from God's will for our lives, or do we allow suffering to refine us? For many, suffering is either a catalyst for change or the straw that breaks the camel's back and leads to further destruction. And I see that over and over again in the patients that we see come through the clinic. Um, It seems like one of two things happens. A bad thing happened and everything else unraveled, or a bad thing happened and I felt that there was, this thing was challenging me to do things different. John Popper writes, When something drops into your life that seems to threaten your future, remember this. The first shockwaves of the bomb are not sin. The real danger is yielding to the shockwaves, giving in, putting up no spiritual fight. And the root of that surrender is unbelief, a failure to fight for faith in future grace a failure to cherish all that God promises promises to be for us in Jesus. Jesus, however, shows us another way. It's not painless and it's not passive. Follow him. Find your trusted spiritual friends. Open your soul to them. Ask them to watch with you and pray. Pour your soul out to the Father. Rest in the sovereign wisdom of God and fix your eyes on the joy set before you in the precious and magnificent promises of God. I've got a, um, I've got a friend, his name's Travis. Um, we're bound together as brothers partly because our stories are so similar. Um, partly because our lives were both refined by near-death experiences when we were in our early 30s. Um, these near-death experiences would, would shape our lives in different ways, but I think that we would both say that these experiences, my stroke and, and his accident, would, would um, be kind of the defining moment in our lives. Travis came in to me um, into the PT clinic uh, six years ago, I guess, and the minute Travis and I sat down and talked, it was like there was just this instant connection. And I remember that I had read prior to that time, as I was kind of going through this transformation process, or the Lord was calling me to go through this transformation process of like being all in or all out, um, I had read that the quote was, God is willing to do anything in this life to secure me for an eternity. And so I shared that sentiment with Travis a few moments after we met. And we've been friends ever since. I want to tell you a little bit about Travis's story. Um, but I also want to talk to Travis for just a second. Um, if Travis, if you listen to this podcast, I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know how much I respect your daily fight and Alicia's daily fight. I want you to know how strong I think you are. I want you to know how much I want you to totally rest in Jesus. And I want you to know that one of these days I want to see you in heaven and I want you to teach me how to fish and how to hunt and I'm going to teach you to run and it's going to be awesome. So Travis was, um, he's the exact same age as me and I had just come off this near death stroke experience and Travis comes into the office and he tells me his story, and so Travis comes into the office and he's in a power wheelchair and he can move his elbow a little bit and move his hand a little bit, but other than that, Travis really can't move. Um, Travis is totally dependent uh, and most of that dependence falls on his family, especially his, his wife, Alicia. Anyway, years ago at a birthday party, um, Travis was with his friends on the river, and as Travis had a tendency to do during those days, he had a little bit too much to drink, and Travis knew not to do it because he knew how shallow the water was, but um, it was his birthday, and he was he was feeling kind of good, and so he dove in headfirst into the river that afternoon, and uh, he said that, The minute he hit, he knew it was bad. The minute he hit, he knew it was bad. And so he said he floated to the top and laid there motionless, and his buddies came and flipped him over. They called helicopter to airlift him to um, Grady in Atlanta. And at that point in time, he was going through pretty significant um, DTs from alcohol and tobacco withdrawal. And they couldn't stabilize him, so they couldn't operate on his neck. Uh, And so he had fractured his neck, and the key to recovery after a spinal cord injury is early intervention. Well, they were afraid that he would lose his life if they operated on his neck, and so he laid there for a couple of days in immense pain, not only the pain of having a fractured neck, not only the pain of not being able to move your body, but also the pain of, of DTs. So they would go on to stabilize the fracture and he would spend many months in inpatient rehab and then came to see us for outpatient rehab and he still comes to the clinic to this day. Travis would say, if he were here this morning, Travis would tell you that that was the defining moment in his life, but more importantly, that was the refining moment in his life. That was the one moment where things took a change And yes, he struggles every day. Yes, he has intense pain every day. Yes, he is totally dependent for feeding and bathing and toileting. But when I look on Travis, I don't pity Travis. When I look on Travis, Travis challenges me to be strong and to be patient and to persevere because he's never come into the clinic and complained. He's never come in and said, why me? He would say that his relationship with the Lord is so much different now than it was before. He would say his relationship with his wife is so much different than it now, that now than it was before. He would say that his relationship with his family. He's gone on to uh, get custody of their nephew, and it's just amazing to me how this guy is the leader for his family. And so. This story should serve to show us that God can use suffering to turn us from the error of our ways in the case of a non-believer. And in the case of a believer, God allows suffering to draw us closer in faith to him. So my question this morning is, does our suffering allow us to hide from God like Adam? Or do we use the example of Jesus and prayerfully face our fears? Not allowing fear to deter us from our path as Christ did. I contend this morning that followers of Adam will allow fear and suffering to define them and followers of Jesus will allow fear and suffering to refine them. So in conclusion, I want to challenge us this morning. I want to challenge us that, I want to ask the question, is, uh, is our experience of God and our relationship with Jesus defined and limited by our expectations of who they will be in our lives? In Scripture, we see that Moses reluctantly gave leadership. Solomon gave wisdom, but Jesus gave himself. Fully and wholly, Jesus gave himself. Do we allow Jesus to take a role in our fear and in our suffering and prayerfully go to him with all of our anxieties? As we go into our open time, I challenge us as a body of believers I just want us to expect a full dose of the Holy Spirit. To allow Jesus to fully give himself to us because in the end, that's exactly what he came to do was to give himself fully to us. I challenge us to strip away the evil that gets in our heads and our hearts and tells us no when we feel the tug of the Spirit this morning. And I just challenge you that if you feel the tug of the Spirit in uh, in open time, I just... I just challenge you to move. I challenge us to allow the Spirit to move in us and move in this place so that God can be glorified. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Jesus, we renounce every limit that we have placed on you. We renounce every limit that we have placed on you in our lives, dear Jesus. We break those limitations this morning. We renounce them, Father. We revoke them. Forgive us, Jesus, for restraining you, for putting you in a box. We give you full permission to be yourself with us, dear Jesus. We ask for you, Lord, the real you. We give you total access to every aspect of our lives, dear Father. Come in, Lord. Please reveal Yourself to us. Change us, Father. Refine us. Meet us where we are. Calm our fears and allow us to face the fears and struggles of this life with patience, perseverance, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.